I recently got started on Ancestry.com. I told some of you this. Uh, it's it's pretty cool. Um, all the documents you can find and um, the the federal censuses and uh, and I've so it's been really interesting. I, I've got Scottish and Irish and German and Prussian and French and Norwegian and and English immigrants in my family. Uh, so we're from all over. On my maternal grandmother's side is the Austin family, and uh, Morris Austin, around 1800, married Letitia McClanahan, and Letitia's father was Alexander McClanahan, who was born in Ireland but came to America in time to fight in the American Revolution. Alexander McClanahan married Sarah, oh, sorry, he married Elizabeth Shelton, and Elizabeth Shelton's sister married Patrick Henry. He was uh, his first wife. So I learned that Patrick Henry is my seven times great uncle. Pretty cool, huh? Um, and and I, I like being able to associate myself with, with the man remembered for his phrase, give me liberty or give me death. Right? You know, that's like one of those triumphant, quotable moments in, in American history. And, you know, he said that uh, to conclude his speech that he presented in an effort to convince the Virginians to put together a volunteer militia to fight um, against English abuse and tyranny. And in that speech, he said that the issues at hand were no less than a matter of slavery versus freedom. Henry and so many Americans would rather die than live as slaves under an unjust ruler. They fought and bought freedom, as we all know, with that war and many subsequent wars. And we now enjoy that freedom. And many of you in the military, you still fight for that freedom, and, and I thank you for that, sincerely. But not all Americans, I think, have a clear view of the kind of freedom that our forefathers struggled to achieve. Larry the Cable Guy... Um, comedian and uh, the voice of Mater on Cars. Um, he's got a show on the History Channel called Only in America, where he goes around the country doing uh, the most absurd things, participating in, in the most absurd things that Americans do. Uh, you know, wrestling alligators, demolition derbies with school buses, uh, bullfighting, go-kart derbies, all, all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, and, and not everything in the show is bad. It, you know, there's a lot of really great stuff. Um, but but there's, I think there's an underlying assumption in that show and, and in a lot of our society that, that freedom as a, at its core is about 100% autonomy without, um, without accountability. And that's what it means to be American, that I'm free to do what I want. Um, but there's just, I feel like there's something not quite right there. I'm not trying to imply that personal liberty is bad or anything, because it's not. In fact, Paul even says in one of his other letters that if a man who is a slave can become free, that he should, that it's good to be free. Um, So I'm not saying that personal liberty is bad or that Patrick Henry was was wrong uh, or the rest of the, uh, uh, the revolutionaries. What I want to point out is that for many people, probably most of us in some ways, Freedom itself becomes too precious, an idol even. And we would 
rather fight and die for freedom and autonomy than live as slaves to Christ. So that brings us to our text. Uh, Paul, um, Paul's writing his letter to his friends in Philippi. Um, so uh, Paul went to Philippi uh, originally. He planted this church, and then he was away for, for several years. Um, and he longed to return to them. But uh, at the time of this letter, as um, Mr. Edmonds uh, said, uh, he was in prison. So he was not able to be with them. But he wanted to. Uh, and uh, researchers, uh, academics, have reason to believe that <clears throat> excuse me, uh, that he had gotten reports uh, from uh, people from the church, maybe leaders or pastors in the church. Uh, and so he kind of knew what was going on. And so he was trying to address his friends in the Philippians in a way that would encourage them and, and exhort them and bring them uh, to Christ, that they could grow as Christians. One of the overarching ideas in his letters, in this letter, is submissive humility. And this idea of submissive humility is especially highlighted in the second chapter, where Paul elaborates on the beauty of Christ's humility through incarnation. And we use that as our call to worship, but let me just read that, a section of that for you now. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we have that in chapter 2. But even at the beginning of the first chapter, we have a hint that, that this is going to be an important part of the book. Uh, if, uh, so if you look at verse 1 again, Paul, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the, Philippi with the overseers and deacons. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, if you look at some of the, Paul's other letters, um, you'll notice there's a trend at the beginning of each one. He uses typical conventions for opening letters. He, he says who he is and who he's writing to. But Paul uses that very intentionally in each of his letters. For example, in Galatians, he opens uh, Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ. And so he's asserting his apostolic authority. And then sure enough, for the first, uh, um, first two chapters of Galatians, a great majority of it is about uh, him defending his apostolic authority to them so that he has the right to train them and to teach them. So what do we have in this letter? Well, we have him saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Not apostle with authority, not this, not that. Servants. Um, so that, that makes me believe that that's very intentional. I haven't studied Greek yet, uh, but I learned from some commentaries that the Greek word for servants here is douloi, or in the singular, doulos. Um, and in various discussions about, about slavery in biblical times, you know, there, you know, or, or even just historically, there are various kinds of slavery or servanthood. You know, there's bond servants and, and limited terms. And there are different words for that in Greek. <clears throat> but the word that Paul chose most specifically means someone who is the property and owned 
by another person. So he didn't, he didn't choose the word that means someone who, who is an employee uh, or is just a steward of something. But rather, he calls himself a servant, a slave of Christ. And it's the same word that he uses to describe Christ in chapter 2, in verse 7 that I read. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, of a doulos, of a slave, that Christ did that. So Paul is imitating Christ's humility, Christ's posture of servanthood. So if that's who Christ is, what does it mean to be a Christian? Surely the Philippians were asking this question at least as much as we do, probably more because they didn't have all the historical uh, precedents and cultural context that we have of, of what it means to be a Christian. But the apostles were given the mission of teaching the churches what that means. What does it look like to live like Christ? Paul points out to the Philippians that an important part, a crucial part of being a Christian is imitating his slavery, his servanthood, his doulos, humility. Being a slave to the Father's will for his glory and for the sake of others. Love God and love others. So Paul is appealing to the Philippians here that they let go of their pride and their fearful hesitation and live with abandon in the freedom found in being enslaved and joined to Christ, and being made like Jesus. So let's see a little bit more of how he does this. Uh, Look again with me at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Uh, One thing, well, if you... If you look at uh, some of Paul's other letters, you'll see that another common theme is unity in the gospel, unity around Christ. And I think that Paul is getting at that here as well. Um, Ah, yes, there we are. Um, uh, So in in the other epistles, like Romans, it was, uh, you had... Um, the meat eaters and the festival followers versus the not. In Galatians, you had Galatians, you had the Jews versus the Gentiles, and in the other other epistles, you've got the followers of Paul versus the followers of Peter versus the followers of Apollos, and all these all this fighting. Um, it, it, they were <laughs> they were almost as good at finding uh, lines to divide the body of Christ as we are. <laughs> um, but what do we notice about Paul's language here? Right? Did you notice how many times he uses the word all in that little section? Who, yeah, he says all several times in these verses and later. And uh, I agree with some scholars and commentators that, that this is not exaggeration or hyperbole. 
you know, you know, like when you go visit somewhere that you used to be like a, an old workplace or your school or alma mater or maybe a family gathering and you're like, oh, it's so good to see all of you. Um, but really you're thinking like, oh, it's so good to see like two of you and the rest of you. I'm glad I didn't have to see for a while. You know, the, <laughs> we say, oh, good to see all of you. I don't think Paul was doing that. I think he was sincere that he really loved and missed all of them. Uh, and, he, and he says this intentionally to confront some of the struggles that they had with unity and being together in the gospel and, and uniting, getting over their differences to be united in Christ. Um, yeah. Uh, we struggle with that same thing, like I already mentioned. You know, how often... Uh, how often do we justify our not wanting to love certain people in, in our church or even more so other churches, you know, those weird churches who do this or that that are so different from our customs or um, what's comfortable for us? You know, we're happy to segregate ourselves for the sake of comfort. So Paul's addressing this. He knows that uh, they struggle with unity because they have pride and they want to be comfortable and they don't want to be slaves. They don't want to be servants of Christ. They want to be Christians, but to do it kind of on their own terms at times. Let's keep looking at the text and see some more. I'm going to start at verse 6 again. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So there's that section there. Uh, and I love this section. This might be my favorite part of the passage. Um, in some ways it's the least, you know, confronting. So that's nice. Um, but I, I love it. It's, it. I love how beautiful it is because uh, he, Paul touches on several ideas here, but chief among them is assurance of our salvation. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That is such good news that God will not abandon us in our sanctification and our growth as Christians. Why is Paul so sure of this? Well, he gives his reason. You are with me, he says to the Philippians. In my imprisonment, you've been caring for me. But infinitely more importantly, you affirm the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, Paul is being very intentional here. He's not just throwing around random thoughts about Jesus. He's building a convincing case to encourage and exhort his friends here in Philippi. And because of that, I think it's safe to assume that being sure of our salvation is vital to our growth as Christians. Look what he connects there with our, with our assurance of salvation. He points out some ways that it's lived out, and, and he actually talks about this more in chapter 4 of the same letter. But he says, uh, first, love more and more love, and also knowledge, and wisdom, and discernment. Why? 
to approve what is excellent and to be holy and pure and blameless, not just for us, but for others to witness the fruits of righteousness that come from Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. That when we are sure of our salvation, that leads us and it frees us to love, to grow in knowledge and wisdom, not just so that we can be great people, but so that we can love others, share with them, share the fruit of righteousness from Christ and from the Holy Spirit. And that sounds really great. I mean, it sounds good to me. Um, growing in love and knowledge and wisdom and holiness, and it is great. Um, maybe you're different than me, but I know that when I think about those things, I tend to think about them in, uh, as happening in a context of successful living, you know, working hard and achieving goals, you know, especially at the beginning of the new year like this. It's like, yeah, I'm going to be holy and righteous, and this is going to be awesome, right? Uh, but uh, remember, where is Paul writing from? Paul's writing from prison. That is not my New Year's resolution, to, to write letters from prison. <clears throat> He's in prison, again, for like the millionth time, Paul is always in prison because he keeps preaching. <laughs> um, but let's keep looking at the text. Let's see how he elaborates on his situation. How he can uh, preach to them with joy in prison. So let's look again at the text. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's excited, right? He's excited here. Because he's in prison? Well, not, not directly, He's excited because his circumstances have served in the advance of the gospel. This is the place where we see one of the strange paradoxes of Christianity. Rejoicing in suffering, even unto death. In the early church, and even now, some have taken this idea to an extreme and have presumed that more suffering must lead to more joy. And therefore... um, Therefore, we, you know, if you think like that, then we should go look for ways to have more suffering. And this has led to practices of, of self-flagellation and, and self-inflicted pain. Uh, but I don't see any examples of that set by Christ. So I'm not sure that that's the, the right end to follow. Um, but rather, like Paul, we can delight in Christ despite our circumstances, And we can even consider our sufferings, as Paul did, an honor, that we would be considered worthy to take part uh, in advancing the gospel, and that even though it involves suffering, that we can rejoice that we have helped to bring about God's kingdom, that he has used us in that way. And even more so, like Paul says in verse 14, um, he says, uh, if... And if we can inspire others to be much more bold to speak the word without fear through our own suffering, then we have brought glory to God. And we can rejoice in fulfilling our ultimate goal, as the Westminster um, Catechism puts it, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
we also see in the next few verses that Paul is even okay with people preaching with mixed or even impure, malicious motives. Let's look at that. The next few verses, verse fifteen. Some indeed preach from Christ. Uh, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Paul trusts so much the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about God's will that he would rather have Christ preached from manipulative men than not at all. Because he knows that God can use anything and anyone that he wants to advance his kingdom. This is good news for me. Not only is Paul okay with suffering for Christ, or losing his reputation for the advance of the gospel. But he's even having a hard time deciding what's better, to live or to die for Christ. We see that in this next section. Let's look at that. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul is sharing with the Philippians his depth of contentment in Christ, his joy in Christ. Even though he's in prison, even though he's not following his own will, his own plan, He's joyful, and he's content. He's content to live a life on earth, sufferings and all, because it's fruitful work with Christ and his people. And he's also content to die so that he can be consummated to his Savior, finally. And when all is boiled down, he has two options, live and be happy because of Jesus, or die and be happy because of Jesus. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a perspective with a lot of freedom. Where's the disappointment? Where's the failure? Where's the ruin and the embarrassment? It's not there. It's not there. There is none. To be happy in Jesus is to be happy for eternity. Or as as John Piper often says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. This is what it means to be a Christian. Paul was answering the question that was most likely nagging at the Philippians every day that they were trying to figure out, what does it mean to be a Christian? Being a Christian means to feast on Christ for everything and to live in him. But as we know, it's not easy. It's a fight. We have to fight to live like that. 
The Holy Spirit is working in every Christian, every believer, exactly how he needs to. But we also have the ability to fight with our minds and our bodies and our hearts, to rid ourselves of our our sinful habits and other masters who would bend us to their bidding. But unlike God, they will leave us stripped of our dignity and, and withered in emptiness. That's our, it's our sinful nature and the lies of the world and, and the evil one luring us to drink from, from poisonous nectars, things that seem so sweet but, but strip us of our life. I shared this quote on The City a couple days ago. Dennis Johnson, uh, who wrote a commentary on Philippians that I, I've been using, he, he puts it like this. No matter how much you would like to think otherwise, your every plan and action is driven by a desire to avoid pain or achieve gain by pleasing or placating some lord or another. The master you serve may be success or money or what money can buy. Your lord may be affection or romance or reputation and respect. You may be enslaved by other people's opinions, terrified at the prospect of rejection or ridicule, or perhaps you are haunted by the specter of life alone. I, personally, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to suffer for Christ. In fact, I don't want to suffer for anyone. (laughs) Uh, I will go to extreme lengths to avoid pain. I will lie, I'll cheat, I'll manipulate, and hurt even those who I claim to love the most, my friends, my wife, even myself, which doesn't even make sense if I'm avoiding pain and hurting myself, uh, just so that I can get what I want, an an easy way of living. And even in ministry, I can find ways to manipulate things and people and justify my actions so that I get exactly what I want while still looking good. Some of you are very much like me, although hopefully not as bad. Um, Others of you are different, though. Others of you don't mind suffering, and, um, but why you suffer is, is where you find the rub. While I and many of you struggle with avoiding pain, some of you struggle with achieving gain through your suffering, if, if, if that's what it takes. If you achieve, if you, but if you receive recognition, then it's no problem. If, you, if your suffering produces something that lasts or tangible, or evidential, then it's worth it. But if you get overlooked or can't see the point of what you're doing and you you can't see the result, it's not worth it. It's not worth suffering. And I think the Philippians were not much different than us. And Paul knew that. He knew that they tended to be selfish and divisive and would avoid pain or seek to achieve gain for themselves before surrendering to Christ on a daily basis. So what did he tell them? Who did he point them to? He pointed them to Christ. And by his own example, he echoed the humility and selflessness of Christ. And he called them to do the same with and for each other. And we see that especially in these last few verses. 27 to 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So Paul was reminding the Philippians of what their calling is, not only to believe, but to suffer. But he also shows them how to do that. Not to suffer with angst and, and, and depression. Uh, not that those things are necessarily evil. Lots of Christians struggle with depression, and rightly so, because we live in a very broken world. But at the core, at the core, we have lasting joy and freedom in Christ. Paul is reminding them that they, that they themselves are the most precious things in the world. Slaves to Christ. But not slaves like they were used to seeing in the Roman Empire. He wanted to prepare them for a life of service to Christ, who is the perfect master, who doesn't abuse his slaves, who doesn't wither them or work them to the bone. But he loves them. And he even became a slave, doulos, himself, for our own sake. The same uh, author and pastor that I quoted a minute ago, he, he puts it this way. Uh, and this quote is at the beginning of your worship folder as well. He says, Being Jesus' slave not only frees us from every abusive master, but also confers delegated authority. The Lord delegates authority to his slaves to accomplish his will and shepherd his people. More than that, the Lord honors the slave's role by assuming it himself in his incarnation. His incarnation, which we have been celebrating for the last six weeks in Advent and Christmas, that when Christ came and came to be with us, he took the form of a slave so that he, as, as we say in um, O Holy Night, that he knows our need to our weakness. He is no stranger. In, in a strange and paradoxical way, there is unlimited freedom and joy when we are chained to Christ rather than our own ways and our own ambitions. And so we therefore need, do not need to be ashamed of our servitude because as slaves to Christ, we're freer than any free person of this world. We're free to love and to live and die and also we wield the power of the Spirit, and we have purpose and a mission to share this with the world in which we live. And not only that, but we are loved and honored, and we are being made like our Master, the good and just and perfect and holy one. That's what being a slave to Christ is. That's what being a Christian is. It's submitting ourselves to the perfect Master and resting in his will, and delighting in the life that we find there. And today we have the joy of taking part in communion, which is just another way of, of like I said earlier, of feasting on Christ, of being united to him. So I hope and pray that, that as we do that, that God will seal these truths to your hearts. Um, that like me, that <laughs> I hope that he's working in you to break your own will and submit to his. 
Will you pray with me again?